0: You're now listening to a podcast of Revolution Church located at 1702 6th Street in Portsmouth, Ohio. Revolution meets on Sunday evenings at 6 p.m. For more information, visit www.revolutionchurchohio.com or check out our Facebook page. All right, if you guys want to go ahead and take your seats and open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20, verse 14. Uh, Just real quick, if, uh, if my voice goes out or I cough a lot, I apologize. A lot of stuff in the chest, you guys know what I'm talking about, it's been happening. Um, But yeah, we're continuing our study of the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20, verse 14. Uh, And this evening we're looking at the second table of the law, which is summed up with the commandment to love your neighbor as you love yourself, and we are considering specifically the seventh commandment. So we're going to be spending our time this evening uh, thinking through sexual sin um, and why it's sinful. Right, as the Puritans said, we're going to consider the sinfulness of sin. Um, but sexual sin has always been a temptation. It's always been a problem, right? even amongst the people of God. If you've read your Bibles, you know what I'm talking about. Just a couple examples. In the Old Testament, we can read in the book of Deuteronomy about the Israelites committing sexual immorality with the pagan Moabite women. You'll read that whenever you read the story about Balaam. And in the New Testament, we can see all kinds of sexual sin issues in the church in Corinth, right? All kinds of stuff's going wrong in Corinth. But the reason why I bring those two examples up is I'm wanting you guys to, to see just real quick right off the bat that sexual sin is not a new problem, right? And, and I want to say that because sometimes I, I think that we might get this idea that it's a new problem because it seems to have gotten worse in our time. Uh, but I would argue that it really hasn't gotten worse. People are just more open about it. Right? And people have more access to commit sexual sin today with no immediate consequences. Sexual sin is certainly more acceptable now than ever, but the problem has always been there. Right? Even in old Puritan church records, you can see sexual sin topping the list of reasons for church discipline. That sounds crazy, doesn't it? Like These are Puritan churches, but it's the truth. All right, but the problem has always been there because sin is primarily a heart problem, right? And the sinful nature of man hasn't changed; it hasn't. The only difference is that people are just more open now about their sin. Society, for certain, accepts sexual sin and it praises it. So, no, the, the problem hasn't gotten worse; it's just gone public. Right? People have no shame anymore. Uh, culture that used to once be governed somewhat by the scriptures as a whole. It has completely abandoned that. We're entering an age of relativism. Indeed, we are there and people have no shame. And this, among other reasons, is why the seventh commandment is incredibly relevant for us. This is a problem humanity's always had. Now, when I say that all of scripture is always relevant, but this commandment is very easy for us to see how it's relevant for us in our day. Now, as Christians, we are immediately opposed to all forms of sexual sin, right? Whether it be homosexuality, adultery, rape, fornication, pornography usage, prostitution, incest, bestiality, and more, right? Our knee-jerk ought to be repulsion at the thought of sexual sin, right? That it's something to be detested and avoided. And while I, I think most of us would say that we hate sexual sin, and I don't doubt that, um, I think that maybe we have all been influenced by our sexually charged and promiscuous culture to be desensitized to sexual sin. Right? And what I mean is that I, I don't think that we always take the seventh commandment as seriously as we should. Right, that's a problem for us. But, but let, me, let me show you why I think that. Let me give you some examples, some, some thought-provoking questions that may awaken you to a realization that maybe you don't take sexual sin as seriously as you ought to. A few questions. First one, have you ever found yourself watching a movie about two people that are dating and find yourself at some point in the movie rooting for them to fornicate? Like you want them to get together? You watch the show and then find yourself smiling when they go back to the bedroom and shut the door behind them? Do you ever find yourself glad when a woman you know divorces her husband, even though that there was no adultery or abandonment, no biblical grounds for divorce, but you're glad that she's divorcing her husband and you hope that she gets with someone else, even though Jesus says she's committing adultery if she remarries, but you find yourself glad anyway? Or you're watching a movie And the female character has a very mean and rude husband, right? He's just mean. He doesn't do do anything that that terrible, I guess. He's just very mean to her. And and she cheats on him with the hero male character of the film, and you find yourself happy that she got with someone else because her husband was so mean to her? Or do you ever find yourself, just in general, completely cold? To how immodest both men and women are in their speech and in their dress and their actions and how they carry themselves. Like you've just grown cold to that whenever you see it in public. And there are more examples we could consider, but these, these are enough. My point is that we always, I think that we don't always take sexual sin seriously. We don't always see it as something to be abhorred, as something to run away from. And when I say run away from it, I'm not saying that we need to run away from the culture and hide in a bomb shelter. I'm not down with bomb shelter theology. But to flee, rather, to flee from every form of temptation to sexual sin. I think that most of us have become desensitized to sexual sin. And that's a problem. Because when we become cold to something, we run the risk of not seeing it as a big deal, and eventually we will begin to participate in it. Right? It's just generally how it goes. Desensitized, then you don't think it's a big deal, then you begin to dabble in it. So what I'm getting ready to say, before we hop into the text, I stole from another preacher. Right, I just want to be honest with you guys, I'm not this creative. But you guys know about custom-made clothing, right? Custom-made clothing. Uh, tailor-made suits, tailor-made dresses. Some of you guys may own some, although you're definitely not wearing them this evening. Um, but a tailor-made piece of clothing is made especially to fit you, right? Other people might be able to wear your tailor-made suit or dress, but it fits best on you. And I think that some of the Ten Commandments are tailor-made for us, right? And it varies from person to person, right? The Sixth Commandment may be tailor-made to fit someone who is habitually angry. The Fifth Commandment may be for someone who constantly mocks their parents, And I think that the seventh commandment may very well be tailor-made to fit some of us here this evening. Indeed, I am almost certain of it. So I hope that you guys are going to pay very close attention. And as much as it's up to you, open your hearts to receive the truth of the word of God this evening. So that said, let's go ahead and read, very short, first two verses of chapter 20, and then our commandment this evening. Exodus chapter 20. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall not commit adultery. This is God's word. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we ask that you would bless us this evening as we sit under the ministry of the word. We ask that by your Holy Spirit, you would prick our consciences and cut us to the heart so that we can see the depth of our sin. And then allow us to see our great hope and Savior, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. Please open our hearts to receive your word and walk in it by faith. We pray this in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Alright, so the first thing I want us to do is is consider the sin that is explicitly mentioned in this commandment, although other sins are implied, and we'll get to that later. But the sin explicitly mentioned is adultery. Alright, so what is adultery? Well, specifically... Adultery is when a married person engages in some kind of sexual activity with someone that they are not married to, right? So a husband or wife who cheats on their spouse with someone who is unmarried is committing adultery. Likewise, if a husband or wife cheats on their spouse with someone who is married, they're committing adultery as well, right? What makes something adultery is that at least one of the parties involved in the sexual activity is married to someone else, Right? So that's the sin explicitly mentioned in the commandment, the sin of adultery. Now something that's kind of funny about this, not that adultery is funny, but something that's kind of funny in preaching on this is that I don't have to explain to you that adultery is horrible, do I? I don't. Like, I don't have to like, make a case like I might have to for other sins and why God would forbid them. Adultery is an act that is despised all throughout the world and has been even like since the beginning of humanity. There, are, there have been pagan cultures, like the Celts. They would kill people in their own communities for committing adultery. And they did not have the scriptures. This is universally condemned and hated sin. Pagans have hated it. People who practice false religion to this day hate it. Even atheists and agnostics hate it, if, if you get to talk to them about it. right? Even in our sexually promiscuous and permissive culture, adultery carries a stigma with it. Right? It's something to be hated. It's something to be scorned. People look down on it, and people tend to think very harshly about adulterers, Right, even in our culture. And that's, a, that's a good thing. Right? But, but why is this sin so universally and des- despised and detested? Because it's very easy to see how it hurts people. It's very easy to see how the sin of adultery hurts people. And remember, the second table of the law is summarized with love your neighbor as you love yourself. And the sin of adultery is a sin that shows hatred for other people. Period. There's no getting around it. It shows hatred for other people. We all know people who have been married. Someone committed adultery and the marriage ended with a divorce and the offended party suffered for a long time dealing with the fact that their spouse betrayed them. And they might never get over it completely. We've heard stories or known someone who found out that their spouse was cheating on them and then committed suicide. We've all seen adultery end with divorce and broken homes where children are then left to try and pick up the pieces of their lives that one of their parents shattered for them. Adultery hurts people and it's selfish it's that simple you cannot love your neighbor and also commit adultery you cannot love your spouse and at the same time cheat on them it's a sin that ruins families it's a sin that destroys trust ends marriages breaks children and sometimes ends with the death of one or more people it is a horrible sin and we ought to hate it with a passion if the pagans hate it. How much more the people of God should hate this sin? But usually, when people think about why adultery is bad, they think it's bad because of the effects that it has on other people, right? And that is certainly a reason to hate it, right? Adultery hurts others, and as the people of God, we want to see human beings flourish and do well, right? But but I want us to see beyond that for a minute. It's easy to see how adultery hurts other people, but I want us to see how this is a sin against God. Right? I, I want us to see how King David, after committing adultery with Bathsheba, could say to God, against you, you only have I sinned. Psalm 51 verse 4. I want us to see that. David is saying that his sin is primarily and first and foremost against God. How is that true? I want us to see why in Genesis, Joseph called adultery a great evil and sin against God. I want us to see how this is a sin against God. And in order to see that and understand that, we need to understand what marriage really is, how God is involved in it, and what it was designed to picture. Marriage, the first thing. Marriage is a holy institution. It's holy. It's something ordained by God himself all the way back at creation. You guys will remember in Genesis 2, Chapter 2, verse 18, Then the Lord God said, It's not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. And then in chapter 2, skip on down to verse 21 through 24. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Now, this might not seem like it, but on that day, right, that happened on the sixth day, what we, that account we just read, that was Adam and Eve becoming husband and wife, right? That's, that's what we just read. God made Eve to be Adam's helper so that they might be one unit. And then if you notice in that very last Verse, the very famous thing you've heard at all the weddings. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Right? Moses puts that in here because he wants us to see that this is a marriage. Right? This is a marriage between Adam and Eve. And that marriage is always intended to be monogamous. Right? There's always intended to be fidelity in a marriage. There's to be one man and one woman in this institution, in this covenant for life. Adam and Eve were the first married couple. God created them so that they might fulfill the mandate, creation mandate, to be fruitful and multiply, right? So again, this is a marriage. But what I want you guys to see here is that it is God who created the institution of marriage. God, you could put it this way, God performed the first wedding ceremony when he made Eve and gave her to Adam. It's as if he gave her away, right? Like a father gives away his daughter, God is the one who instituted marriage and gave it to humanity. It's His thing. I want you to see that. It's a holy institution made by God. Marriage belongs to Him. He gave it to mankind as a gift and has allowed us to keep it even after our fall into sin because He's kind to us. But since marriage is something that we didn't come up with, right? contrary to what you may learn in colleges, marriage is not a social construct. Right? It's something given to us by God. It's from God. And since man did not come up with this institution, then it's not something that man can change the terms to without destroying the thing itself. You can't change the terms to it. You can't change the one man, one woman for life in a monogamous relationship. You can't change those terms. And since God instituted it, it is holy. Holy. Something set apart. Something that's ineffable. You're not supposed to mess with it. All right, so married couples, listen, your marriage is a holy thing. It might be a difficult thing at times, it may be a frustrating thing at times, but it is a holy thing. It is something unique, it's something sacred, something set apart by God and given to you as a gift. But what does adultery say about this holy thing that God created? Adultery counts this holy institution of marriage as something to be scorned and mocked. Because don't be deceived, adultery is a mockery of the institution of marriage. That's what adultery counts it as, as something to be scorned. Adultery treats something that God has made, a good gift to mankind, It, it and treats it like it's something common and can be easily cast off, that it's an institution not to be taken seriously. Adultery profanes and violates something beautiful and holy that the Lord God Almighty has created. Surely this is an offense against God himself. To mock and abuse his good gift. To bring a third party into what God said is to be a monogamous relationship. Surely this is a mockery of God. Second, marriage is a covenant. When we say that marriage is a covenant, we mean that it's more than just a legal contract. Right? Marriage is a solemn vow based on a commitment to love another person. Right? It's a promise made to the other person that you'll be faithful to them, that you'll do good for them, and that you are permanently committed to them exclusively. And most importantly, a covenant is something entered into with God as its witness. Keep that in your mind. A covenant is something entered into with God as its witness. In marriage, if you're married, you have made a covenant before the Almighty. Malachi chapter 2, verse 14, God says that He was the witness to the people's marriages, right? To their covenant. He said, The wife that you took in covenant, I was witness to that. Malachi chapter 2, four, verse 14. So, married people, hear me out. Something I want you to think about, maybe you've never considered before. If I could boil down the marriage vows you took, because you took vows right, in your wedding. If I could boil it down to a simple sentence, it would be this. With God as my witness, I will be faithful to my spouse. Right, now the faithfulness may look different Because men have a certain role, right? We're complementarian. Husbands have a certain role to be self-sacrificial, to lead right? spiritually, to provide for, protect, lay down their life if necessary. That's what faithfulness of a husband looks like. And the faithfulness of a wife looks like loving, glad submission to her husband, right? So faithfulness may look different between the two roles of husband and wife, but nevertheless, your vows were essentially, with God as my witness, I will be faithful to my spouse. I will be faithful. And maybe you didn't realize it, But you made an oath to God on the day that you were married. Right? You made an oath to God. Every legitimate covenant is ratified by an oath. Read your Bibles. Always ratified by an oath. And every legitimate oath is primarily an oath to God. Or it's not a legitimate oath. So what essentially happens in marriage vows is that the couple swears to God that they will be faithful to each other. And God bears witness to those vows. He's the one who bears witness to it. Now, do you have any idea how serious an oath is to God? To break a legitimate oath, because there are illegitimate oaths that you shouldn't have taken and and you're not bound to keep. That's another conversation for another time. But marriage, the covenant of marriage is a legitimate oath. And to break a legitimate oath to God is to break the third commandment. It's to take his name in vain. You say, I swear to God, I will be faithful to this woman. That is essentially what you're saying in your marriage vows, and then you break it to take God's name lightly. And God says, I will not hold him guiltless who takes my name in vain. To break an oath to God is to think lightly of the one to whom you swore to do something. Can you see how offensive adultery is to God now? A person who commits adultery swore before God they would be faithful and then broke their vow. It's as if they are defying God to do anything about it. And they're counting Him as vain and nothing as the witness to this covenant. To break a a, a vow to God is to show that you have no respect for Him. To pledge to your spouse, as the classic vows say, before God and these witnesses, is to go back on your vow and trivialize God. To commit adultery is to prove that you think very little about God or His anger. It's as if you've called God to bear witness to a lie. If you were to commit adultery. Because in adultery, a person proves that their wedding vows are nothing but a lie. And you called God to bear, account, or bear witness to it. Can you see now why this is a sin against God himself? And then, lastly, marriage is a picture. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 32. The apostle Paul says, this mystery, marriage, is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Paul tells us that marriage is a mystery, right? In in Greek, that word for mystery means something that is hidden or something that is secret. But now, Paul says that under the new covenant, we can see what that mystery is. So something has been uncovered. And this is what's been revealed to us. Marriage all throughout history has always pointed to the relationship between Christ and his people. Christ and his bride the church one of the biggest reasons again and we could, we could talk about many other reasons but one of the biggest reasons God gave marriage to humanity and created this holy institution and covenant was so that the faithfulness of Christ to his people could be on display for the whole world to see marriage was always rather marriage has always been intended by God to reflect that picture That's why why marriage is to be a picture of faithfulness and love and forgiveness, fidelity. Our marriages are intended to paint this beautiful picture of the gospel, this picture of forsaking all others in order to have Christ, this picture of Christ's never ending love and faithfulness, of our being captivated by and joyous in having Him and Him alone. It's exclusivity. This picture of the self-sacrificial love of Christ and our response of glad submission and faithfulness to him. And what does adultery do to this picture? It threatens every aspect of the picture. Contrary to the God-glorifying picture of marriage, adultery pictures this. Selfishness. Faithlessness. Hatred. Compromise. Violation uncleanliness, covetousness, not being satisfied, wickedness, brokenness, sometimes even the end of the covenant itself. Adultery takes the picture of marriage and threatens to set it on fire. Adultery distorts this picture of the gospel and says to the world, the gospel is a lie. Can you see why God hates this sin? Can you see why He hates this sin? Can you see how this is an offense against the Almighty Himself and not just an offense against your children, not just an offense against your spouse? It's a horrible sin. God hates it. It ends with bitterness. It has horrible consequences. It distorts the gospel. And in many cases, not all, but in many cases it reveals a heart that has not been converted by the grace of God. Run from this. Please, married people, run from this. Flee from sexual immorality. All right, listen to me. If you, if you find a person at work catching your eye, don't entertain the thought. Don't go there. If you've been messaging or calling a member of the opposite sex an inordinate amount, put that to death Now. End it. If you find yourself in a situation where someone is flirting with you, leave. Don't spare their feelings. Leave. Don't fool around with this sin. Your marriage is at stake. Your family is at stake. Your soul is at stake. And the person that you're tempted to commit adultery with is nothing but a life ruiner. Don't think you're strong enough to deal with it yourself. Tell your spouse and do something about it. Run from this before it has time to take to put its claws in you. And God forbid, but if you're engaging physically with someone that is not your spouse, end it now. This very evening, end it and confess your sins to your spouse. Repent. Ask God for forgiveness and be restored. Don't live in the darkness of this sin. You will be destroyed by it. Come to the light and be forgiven by the Savior. And there may be terrible consequences for your evil actions here on earth, but better to repent now than spend eternity in hell apart from Christ. But now that we've looked at the sin of adultery that's specifically mentioned in the commandment, I want to pose another question. Is that all? Is that all that the commandment means to forbid? Is that the only sin implied in this commandment? And the short answer is no, absolutely not. The principle of this commandment is that we are not to engage in any sexual activity outside the covenant bonds of marriage. Right? We are to have sexual relations only with our spouse. This means that if you don't have a spouse, guess what you don't get to do? Right? You don't get to engage in any form of sexual activity. Now, to drive this point home, I want to point out a word used in the New Testament many times. It's the word porneia, right? It's a Greek word. You can already hear that's where we get our word pornography is from the root word porneia. It's the Greek word that gets translated to sexual immorality. And often the word porneia is listed right next to the word adultery whenever you get into Paul's vice lists where he'll list a bunch of sins together in a row. But sexual immorality, what does that mean? Good definition is this. Any kind of sexual activity that violates the Bible's sexual ethic is sexual immorality. And the sexual ethic of the Bible is that any form of sexual activity outside the bonds of marriage between one man and one woman is sin. So this word porneia covers legitimately anything that doesn't take place between one man and one woman in the marriage bed. Right, one pastor told me a good way to think about the word pornéa. Here it is: in your mind, go ahead and, and, and think of a question, right, regards to sexual sin. Well, what about this sexual act, or what about this sexual activity, or it? Does that? Co- yes, that's covered in pornéa too. I don't actually need to know what your question was because that's covered. <laughs> right, pornéa is like a you know you have a drunk drawer in your kitchen, and there's like candles and ping pong balls and like scissors and batteries and stupid stuff. That's the word pornéa. Anything that you can think of in that realm, it goes in the junk drawer. Pornea covers all of it, right? It's a catch-all that covers anything that's not between one man and one woman in the bonds of marriage. And I think that that's clear enough, and I don't need to give any explicit examples, right? Again, the hard part about preaching on the seventh commandment is knowing when you've said enough and when you've said too much. But the seventh commandment reaches out to any kind of sexual activity that is not covered in marriage, Though it only mentions one specific sin, adultery, it covers a whole category of sins, just like all the other commandments do as well. So unmarried people, listen to me. Don't ever, on your life, try and outsmart God or find loopholes in his law. Ever. You'll ruin yourself. That's a dangerous game to play that reveals a heart posture that is not one of a convert. I'm not saying you're not saved. I'm saying you're acting like an unbeliever if you're looking for loopholes in the law. It's not a good look. God hates all forms of sexual immorality, and we're going to see why here in just a little bit. But not only are physical acts of sexual immorality forbidden by this commandment, but sins of the heart as well, right? And this is true of every commandment. You guys already know where we're going, right? We see the Lord Jesus remind us of this truth. The truth that sexual sin is really in the heart. It's not just physical acts. But rather that physical sinful actions are just the outworking of a lustful heart. Matthew chapter 5 verses 27 and 28. Jesus says, You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus says here that if we lust after someone, that we are committing adultery in our hearts. Now, I want to be clear about something here. Jesus is not saying that we can't look at someone and think, man, that woman is beautiful, or that man is a good-looking man. There's nothing wrong with that. That's all right. The reason why I say that is because the Bible actually describes some women as being beautiful and some men as being handsome, right? So there's nothing wrong with seeing that and recognizing that. But the key phrase in this passage is looks at a woman with lustful intent. So when a look becomes a gaze and a gaze becomes sexual thoughts and desires, then you've crossed the line into, the adult, into adultery of the heart. To think about, long for, desire and fantasize about somebody and or what you would like to do with them if they aren't your spouse is to commit adultery with that person in your heart. Jesus raises the bar a bit or rather clarifies what people had forgotten. They thought, oh, I'm keeping the commandment so long as I don't physically commit an act of sexual sin. And Jesus says, no, this is in your heart. So, certainly, then, this covers objectifying people and reducing them to their mere body parts and what is pleasing to look at. These words from Jesus would also tell us that viewing pornography is committing sexual sin in the heart. And I want to go ahead and put a quick word out here about pornography. That stuff will ruin your soul. I'm serious. That stuff will ruin your soul. The images that you see are not quick to get out of your head. The patterns that someone caught in this sin establishes are things that can haunt them for the rest of their lives. Run from this. Run from pornography. Listen, I didn't read it all, but Jesus goes on to say in this passage, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out because it's better to go into the life to come, missing your hand or your eye, than to go to hell with both your hand and your eye. Run from this. Throw your phones away if you have to. Get a flip phone. Get rid of your computer and work at the library. Do whatever you must have nothing to do with this sin and listen to me don't try and lie to yourself about viewing images and videos that aren't technically porn just because someone isn't completely nude or performing a sex act does not mean that the images are not pornographic in nature May God save foolish men and women from lying to themselves so that they can scroll through Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook as they please and think they're not sinning and looking at pictures and videos just because someone has a little bit of clothing on. I don't know if I'm talking to you, but if I'm talking to you, you know what you're doing. Put an end to this. Put an end to this nonsense and repent. Repent. And seek help. Talk to someone. Be free from this sin. It will ruin your life. If you're married, it will ruin your marriage. If you're not married, it's going to put strains on your future marriage. Put it to death. Christ has empowered you to do so if you're a Christian. You don't have to be a slave to your flesh. But maybe you're wondering, why does God take the sin of lust so seriously? Right, why? Why does he count it nearly equal to physical sexual sin? Right? Why is it so close? Why does God count thoughts as sin? You ever wondered that? Why are sinful thoughts sinful? Listen, God counts it as sin. God judges your heart. He judges your thoughts because he knows that the only reason you have not committed the sin physically is because you lack the ability or incentive in your life to follow through with it at that moment. You lack the ability or incentive to follow through with it in that moment, and that's why you've not done it. You don't do the physical action, though you have a desire to do it in your heart, because you lack the physical ability, opportunity, are restrained by societal judgments. You don't want to deal with the consequences of it, right? Maybe within your marriage or in in your church or whatever. You don't want to deal with the consequences of it or something like that. But if you could commit the sin if you could physically commit the sexual sin and get away with it free and clear and never get caught or ever be called to account for it, you would commit the sin. You'd do it. This is why the desire to sin is sinful itself. God knows that if the circumstances and conditions were right, you would do it. And that, brothers and sisters, is evil in and of itself. To desire To disobey God reveals a sinful heart. The desire to disobey is the seed of full-scale rebellion against God. And God sees your hearts. God sees the rebellion within you, and he counts it as treason. You can try and say, but I wouldn't really do it, man. And look, you might be able to fool yourself, but you will not fool the Almighty. You will not fool God. God knows your heart. He knows the full extent of the sinfulness of man. He is the judge, and he cannot be deceived. So let me take a second and give a warning and an exhortation to all of us. To anyone who is tempted to, or has been flirting with, or maybe even indulging here and there in any sexual sin. But mainly I'm talking to you who are flirting with it or considering it, adultery, fornication, sexual immorality, lust, porn use, whatever the sin might be, please hear me. Do whatever you must to be pure. Whatever you must to avoid this sin. Paul in Romans 13 verse 14 says, make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. What's he saying? You know, in a war you might give a soldier from the enemy quarter, you might take him as a prisoner of war. Paul says, no. You make no provision for your flesh. You starve it to death. You kill it. You leave nothing. You leave no stone unturned. You leave yourself no avenue to sin to the best of your knowledge. You make no provision for the flesh. You don't make deals with yourself. Oh, I've done good for a while. I can reward myself a little bit with this. Make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Fight. Really fight. Run from the temptation. Get help. I'm serious. Reach out to me. Reach out to Pastor Stephen. Reach out to someone that you know you can trust. Get help. Talk about it. Don't spend your life in the darkness with this kind of sin. I know I'm being really hard on this, harder than I've been in a lot of sermons, but sexual sin is seriously one of the most destructive forces in the world. It's one of the quickest ways to make an idol in your life, and that idol demands constant sacrifice. It's never had its fill. It always demands more. It's a horrible slave master. Sexual sin promises you intimacy, but leaves you empty. It promises you pleasure, but leaves you guilty. It promises you comfort, but leaves you lonely. God warns us against sexual sin constantly because he knows how powerful this gift of sex is. And he knows that when it's used improperly, it will ruin us and drive us far from him. Listen to me, it is the fastest way to derail your relationship with God on an experiential level. The fastest. You want to have a false god in your life, commit sexual sin. It won't take long. Let me give you an illustration for this. Flirting with any sexual sin is like playing with a caged lion. You open the cage and you taunt it, and it rushes to attack you, but you shut the door just in time. And then you go and do the same thing again, and each time you're letting the lion get a little bit closer to you as you flirt with that line of sexual sin, right? You allowed yourself to to indulge in a little bit, but not go completely into the sexual sin. And for a while, you can still manage to get the cage door shut in time. And you might even begin to think, I've got this whole thing under control. I know my limits. The lion never beats me to the door, but eventually it will. Eventually, the lion will beat you to it, and you'll be mauled, and you'll be ruined. Now, if you saw a person doing that in real life with a real lion, you would think, what a moron. And yet you think you're smarter for fooling around with sin. I, any sin now, we can apply this very, very generally. You flirt with sin, and you think that, that that's less dangerous than flirting with a lion, you'd be, more, you'd be better off to let the lion kill you than to mess with sin. Sin is more powerful than any lion, and it's nothing to trifle with. Listen, Jesus tells Peter, the devil would sift you like wheat, Peter. Satan would have you destroyed by your sin if he had his way. He is much more powerful than you. Sin is a powerful thing. It's more alluring than we often give it credit. It is not something to be toyed with. It's not a game. This isn't a joke. Flee from sexual immorality. And we ought to run from sexual sin. Not only because it's destructive and deceitful and powerful, but also because, as we've said before, God hates it. God hates any and all forms of sexual sin. And let me tell you why. Just think through this with me. God has given this good gift of sex and has told us, here are the perimeters you're to use it in. Here's how you can glorify me as the gift giver as you enjoy my gift. Right Here's what it's for, use it my way and you'll glorify me as you enjoy it. When we commit sexual sin of any sort, we look God in the face and say, No, thank you God, I want the gift only. I do not want the gift giver. I don't really want you. I don't care if you're glorified. I want what I want and I want sexual pleasure right now and I don't care if it's what you want for me or not. And this is a form of idolatry. It's a form of idolatry. Sexual sin rages against the sovereignty of God. When you commit sexual sin of any kind, you're taking something that God hasn't given you, even if it's only in your mind. You're taking something He didn't give you. You're claiming to be your own sovereign and dictate the terms in which you can receive the gift of sexual activity. What you're really doing is you're challenging the authority of God. Doesn't it make sense then that the author of Hebrews says, God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous? Doesn't it make sense that Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Is there any? Does it not does it not make sense why the word of God says that that God will judge and such people won't inherit the kingdom of God? Let me kick it further. Do you think you can sin against God with impunity? You think there are eternal consequences to unrepentant sin? Do you not think that even, listen Christian, I'm talking to you as well. Do you not think that there are temporal judgments on you? And temporal, earthly consequences for your sin? Are you so foolish to think that you can sin with impunity? Do you think that God is a playful God that's not serious about his law? Who's not jealous over his people? He is holy and just, and he's the judge of all men, and all of us are condemned under this commandment. I defy any man or woman amongst us to say that they have not, at the minimum, lusted in their heart. Every one of us is condemned under this commandment. Brothers and sisters, I hope it is abundantly clear to every one of us as we look at the law, whether it be this commandment or any other commandment, I hope it is clear we need a Savior. This has been my point in every sermon I've preached so far. I want you to see you need a Savior. This commandment reveals something to us that it, in and of itself, cannot give. The law cannot save you, it reveals a need. You can't keep this commandment or any commandment of God according to His standard. The law shows you your need for a Savior. But the law is not, cannot be, and will never be your Savior. Now listen, the law is holy and good. There's nothing wrong with the law. The law of God is perfect. It's our sinfulness that brings condemnation on us. Sin is what kills us, not the law. But nevertheless, the law can't save you. The law just reveals the standard. The law just reveals to you that you're already condemned, but it cannot save you. You can cry out to the law for mercy, but that is not something that the law can give. Bare law by itself is void of mercy. It's a merciless thing that offers no hope to the lawbreaker. The law does not hold the office of Redeemer. The law cannot forgive your sins. The law cannot give you grace. The law cannot show you mercy. So you must cry out to the only source of mercy that there is. You must run to Christ for mercy. And He'll freely give it. You must cry out to the Redeemer, the Lord Jesus, and ask Him for grace and pardon for your sins. And He will give it to you freely. He promises to take you in and forgive you and love you and keep you. Christ alone holds the titles of Redeemer, Savior, and Great Forgiver because He alone has taken on your sins on the cross. He alone has paid for your adultery and your lust and your fornication and every other sin that you've ever committed. Christ alone has the power to save. So look to Him. Listen, I'm not only talking to if there is an unbeliever among us, although I'm pretty sure I know all of you well enough to say I know that most of us here, if not all of us, are Christians. I'm talking to all of us. Look to the Redeemer. Don't look to the law. It can't save you. Look to Christ. Receive your pardon in Him. Lay hold of Him by faith. Know that your sins are forgiven in Him. Know that if Christ is yours, then you're fully pardoned and you'll never be cast out. If you've come to Christ by faith, He'll never turn away from you. He'll always take you back. Remember we talked about that picture of marriage. Christ is the faithful bridegroom of His people. Though often we act like whores and sin against Him, He continually takes us in and makes us clean and continues to love us. This is the gospel. Christ is the great lover of His people. Christian, hate your sin and run from it and strive for holiness, but know that the law cannot save you. I don't want you to get that twisted as we go through the law all this time. I want you to walk in obedience. I want you to walk in holiness, but it won't save you. You need Christ. You need the one who kept the law on your behalf. You need the one who gave his life for you. Your life is in him. Everything you have is in him. Your only hope is in him. Look to him and have peace with God. But how are we to strive to keep this law? Right? Like Paul tells us in Romans 7, the law is good, and we should love the law. It can't save you. points out your sin, but you should love it because it comes from our good God and Father who saved us. Again, there's nothing wrong with the law. If we love God, we should want to walk in it. We should desire to walk in it. So how are we to fight our sin and strive to keep this commandment? Because, again, the gospel always comes with a response. We, b- we respond in faith and we're forgiven. And then we continue to respond every day by trying to walk in the law of God by faith. So how are we to walk in obedience? The things I'm getting ready to say, I have four things. They're very practical, and you might not like them. They might step on your toes a bit. And good. Good. <laughs> But are we not willing to do whatever it takes to honor such a great Savior that we just talked about? The one who takes you back repeatedly. The one who's ever faithful to you. Would we not do anything for him? So in these next bit, this is where the rubber meets the road. right? Again, Jesus tells us to gouge out our eye and cut off our hand if we must, right? which is a metaphor. He's saying do whatever you have to do run from the sin. So the question, I guess, before we get into this, so you should ask yourself, is do you want to obey and honor the Lord Jesus in holiness, or do you want to abuse grace? As Paul says in Romans 6, 1, shall we sin more so that grace may abound? God forbid that we would do such a thing. We should never use free grace as an excuse to sin. So here's the first bit of practical advice. How are we going to walk in this commandment? Be watchful over your eyes and your ears. Be watchful. Put a guard on what you will allow yourself to take in. This might sound funny, but in public, this looks like a conscious effort to avert your eyes if you see someone dressed immodestly. Look away. Don't let yourself gaze at someone. This leads to lust, which can lead to even more sin. But more than that, what I'm really getting at is what kind of media that you take in. Like Stephen said in his prayer, we, we live in a media-saturated culture, and we are fools if we think that we can just take in whatever kind of entertainment that we want, and there'd be no consequences for it. You're a fool if you think that. Think carefully over what kind of movies, TV shows, Internet videos, music, books, blogs, whatever it is. Think carefully about what you're taking in. Simply put, stop watching trash, Stop putting garbage into your head. And I'm not trying to tell you, I'm not trying to make a law that says you can't ever watch an R rated movie ever. I'm not saying that. But I am saying that you should not be polluting your mind and your thoughts with sexually explicit images and sex scenes, nudity, and other other immoral kinds of entertainment. Keep a guard over what you entertain yourself with and don't allow yourself to indulge in things that lead to ungodly thoughts and desires. Second, don't give yourself opportunity to commit sexual sin. As regards pornography, set up rules for yourself on when you'll get online and when you won't. Right? Get accountability software on your computers, your tablets, and your phones. Talk to someone in the church, whether it be me or Pastor Steve or someone else. Get help with it. Come talk to someone. For people who are dating, don't allow yourself to be in a situation that could end with sexual sin. Hear me, You don't need to be hanging out alone at one another's houses. That's stupid. Matt Chandler said this, I'm going to sound like I'm 80. Nothing good happens after 11 p.m. when you're alone with someone you're dating. That's just really stupid. Don't put yourselves in those kinds of situations. You're tempting yourself. Married people, don't let yourself be alone with members of the opposite sex so much as it depends upon you. You guys see what I'm saying? Be smart about where you are and what kind of situations you put yourself in. To paraphrase a Puritan I once read, we dare not pray, Lord lead us not into temptation, and then walk right into it willingly ourselves. Third, be busy in fruitful labor. Right? Don't allow yourself to be idle. There are few things less prone to or few people less prone to falling into sin. I'm sorry, I missed that phrasing. I don't even know what I was gonna say. A well-rested person who is bored and has nothing to do as a person who can easily fall into sin. That's what I was trying to say. Devote yourselves to serving your families more earnestly. Put more time in with reading scripture and praying. Busy yourself with reaching out and meeting with other people in the church for discipleship. Right, and look, I'm not just saying this to just keep busy, right, But we see this principle in 2 Samuel chapter 11 with David and Bathsheba. You guys remember the story. David was supposed to be out with the army and he wasn't. He was being lazy. He stayed back. He wasn't where he should have been. He wasn't working like he should have. And David being idle and wasting his time played a role in his sexual sin. So be fruitful with your time. Having free time is fine, but don't waste your time. That's often a recipe for foolish decisions. Then lastly... Be constant in prayer. Be constant in prayer. We need God's grace in order to keep away from any sin. And while there are things we can do and preventative measures we can try and take to keep this commandment, that won't be enough. We're going to need God to strengthen us for the fight. And it's going to be a fight every day. Seek help from God. When you're tempted, pray. When a thought comes through your mind that shouldn't, pray. When you're heading out on a date, pray. When you're around coworkers, pray. When it seems like you've got everything under control and you've not been tempted in weeks, pray harder. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Every one of you knows that quote. Be constant in prayer. Daily seek God's help to fight temptation. And God promises to help all of us. He promises to give us a way out without sinning and promises to give us strength to endure the battle. So seek his help and pray without ceasing. And I want to leave you all with this message of the great grace of the Lord Jesus. Anna's going to read it for us here in a moment. But 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9-11. through 11, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. There is the forgiveness of sins and change in our hearts. So may we all go and sin no more. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. It is illuminating to us to show us what exactly is wrong with us and what is right with Christ. Lord, we thank you for such a good, merciful Savior in him who did what the law could not do. God, please. Keep us from sin. Help us to cooperate as much as it depends upon us to run from this sin. God, help us to walk in holiness and obedience because we love you. Put that in our hearts. Help us to be holy. Help us to fight the good fight. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.